Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds family. Welcome back to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. In the first episode, we discussed the need and training paradigms for this burgeoning field. Today's episode is the second in the series, so definitely stay tuned for many more to come ahead. In this discussion, we learned from Dr. Anulala about the nuances with identifying cardiogenic shock, classification, and initial steps in management, namely the shock team call. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I'd like to introduce student Dr. Hirsch Elhens, who joined our family as a CardioNerd intern. The CardioNerds Academy expanded to include medical students to both help support podcast production and to continue advancing digital medical education, all with the mission to pair content development with personal and professional development. Hirsch, we are so grateful that you have joined the CardioNerds family. Please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and about being part of the CardioNerds team. Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, let me start off by just saying that being a part of Cardio Nerds has been an absolute privilege. Everyone is such an inspiration, and I've learned so much, um, even though it's only been a few months. My name is Hirsch. I'm an MS3 at the Keck School of Medicine at USC in Los Angeles. Grew up in Dallas, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to do IM. But as to what comes after that, I'm not totally sure, because I think everything is pretty, is pretty exciting. But obviously, cardiology is high on my list. I do know that I think eventually I want to, you know, do research that um, involves mining large data sets using data science methods. But um, other than that, I'm pretty excited about what the future you know, has to offer. Hey, Hirsch, you know, working with you only just for a handful of months, it's become abundantly clear that whatever you choose to do, cardiology or not, you'll be a tremendous asset to whatever field. You know, already in the academy, you have such great ideas for the kind of education you want to create, particularly which might be more relevant for some of the early learners. So just we are so excited to watch you progress through the academy and skyrocket afterwards. One of your roles within the Cardi Nerds has been to help us edit the audio for these episodes. And, you know, personally, Dan and myself have uh, reviewed or edited primarily the audio for every single episode on the feed. And I really enjoy that because you, you know, in, in looking at the waves and getting nitty gritty with the audio, you really listen to the discussion on a different level. You get engrossed in it. You almost pick up points that maybe you wouldn't have listening to it at 2x while on a drive. So let me ask you, having edited the audio for this incredible discussion, what did you take away as a medical student? Yeah, so um, I think... Let me preface this by saying my main exposure to cardiogenic shock so far has been in studying for step, and, you know, and I'm sure we all remember that there's this table that you, can, you know, that you have to like digest, which is has all the different kinds of shocks and the SVR and the cardiac output, and you know, you can see how all those parameters change depending on the type of shock. But this discussion with Dr. Lala really helped bring that 2D table and convert it into a 3D picture that's complex and nuanced and. I think what's most exciting is the fact that, you know, in order to detect and treat cardiogenic shock, you really have to integrate different pieces of information from different team members, labs, imaging, and of course, your own careful history and physical. And, you know, you do all that to solve a mystery, which can hopefully help a patient in the long run. And frankly, like that integration and problem solving and, you know, and teamwork, there's nothing more exciting than that for me. And like, that's like what gets me most excited about being in medicine in general. Hirsch, you hit the nail on the head. And, you know, I was I was sad to have missed this recording because one of the kids were sick. He's doing fine. But I couldn't agree more. You know, the way they had this discussion about how, evaluating the patient at the bedside, putting all the data together to, you know, come up with an actionable plan as a heart team, they really just brought the entire discussion and concept to life. And we are so grateful to all of the series co-chairs for, over the course of the series, bringing the entire field to life. Doctors Mark Belkin, Karan Desai, Yoav Karpenshev and Eunice Dugan, as well as, of course, the fit lead who drafted the script for this episode, Dr. Mark Dela Cruz. And last but not least, we are ever so grateful to Dr. Anulala, whose involvement at this point within Cardiner spans far beyond just this episode. She joined us for the Narratives and Cardiology series designed to promote diversity and inclusion and is one of the main PI mentors for the Cardiner's Clinical Trials Network, in which we are identifying fit trialists at different enrollment sites to help support equitable enrollment for Paraglide HF. Through all of these different lenses in working with Dr. Lala, she is just such an inspiration. She's a superstar, and we can say confidently that 
she has been a Cardi nerd well before Cardi nerds came to be. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I think something that was, you know, Shock Team Call is cool, but Dr. Lala is even cooler. Like, she is an absolute inspiration and she's so measured and thoughtful. And if I could be a doctor like her one day, I would be so happy. And friends, remember that the Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to check out the episode description for relevant speaker disclosures and a link for free CME credit. If you enjoy the show, consider supporting us by rating and reviewing Cardio Nerds on your go-to podcast app. And now, time to get nerdy. All right. Looks like we have a quorum on the call. We have the CTICU. We have cardiac surgery. We have advanced heart failure. And of course, we have Dr. B, who is our ECMO cannulation on-call doctor for today. So let's go ahead and get started. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we're a little worried about our patient, whom I think is in cardiogenic shock. And it looks like our new shock algorithm at CardioNerds Medical Center tells us to contact you. We have Mr. C, a 63-year-old man with a history of hypertension, diabetes, CKD stage 3, and severe multivessel CAD, who underwent a four-messled cabbage two weeks ago. He was admitted to our cardiology floor service on the Osler Ward overnight after presenting with progressive shortness of breath, lower extremity edema, and found to have elevated BNP, AKI, and a chest x-ray showing bilateral pulmonary edema. On admission, troponins were mildly elevated but flat, and his EKG had nonspecific T-wave changes. Overnight, he got 40 mg IV of furosemide and then 80 mg IV with minimal urine output. And now this morning, his maps have been falling and are now in the low 60s. His extremities are now cool to the touch, creatinine remains elevated, and his lactate came back elevated also at 2.5. Looking at my algorithm here, it asks me for a sky classification, and based on what I see, I would say he is a stage C. Any advice on our next steps? This sounds like a case for the cardio nerds. Friends, welcome to our second episode in the Cardio Nerds Critical Care Series. This is series co-chair Mark Belkin here with Cardio Nerds Karen Desai and Dan Ambender. After a recent introduction on the field of cardiac critical care with Dr. Jason Katz, we're now going to start our journey into this growing specialty of cardiology by looking at the initial approach to cardiogenic shock. For this episode, I have the distinct honor of introducing my co-fellow, Dr. Mark De La Cruz. Mark is a current Advanced Heart Failure Fellow at the University of Chicago with myself. We actually differentiate ourselves as DLC for De La Cruz and Belkin at work. In this podcast, we may be referring to him as DLC, myself as Belkin, to keep the marks straight. He obtained his Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of Pennsylvania, after which he went on to obtain his medical degree at the University of California, San Francisco. He continued on to internal medicine residency, also at UCSF, where he participated in the clinical research pathway. He served as a heart failure hospitalist for a year before coming to Chicago for General Cardiology Fellowship at the University of Chicago and is now in his Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship. His current research focuses on heart transplant immunology, particularly on the interplay between the gut microbiome and heart transplantation outcomes. Born and raised in Manila, Philippines, Mark also maintains an interest in Filipino cardiovascular health and is an avid traveler. Mark, or DLC, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for this very generous introduction, and thank you for inviting me to join what should be a fun discussion about taking the shock team call and initial management of cardiogenic shock. I am doubly excited since today I have the distinct privilege to introduce a personal idol of mine, totally fangirling, as our expert discussant, Dr. Anu Lala Chandade. Dr. Lala is an advanced heart failure and transplant specialist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. There, she wears so many more hats. She serves as the Director of Heart Failure Research and as Data Coordinating Center Leadership for the NHLBI Cardiothoracic Surgery Network. A prolific educator, Dr. Lala has won numerous teaching awards and leads the fellowship program in advanced heart failure and transplant. A physician scientist par excellence, she has authored numerous peer-reviewed scientific publications and is the principal investigator for a number of clinical trials in heart failure. She serves as the deputy editor of the Journal of Cardiac Failure and also serves on local and national committees and the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, Heart Failure Society of America, among others, devoted to advanced heart disease. As if all those hats weren't enough, she's also the loving mom of two beautiful young children, a lifelong Indian classical dance and bangar dancer who founded the Johns Hopkins University Josh Dance Troupe, and she previously tried her hand at stand-up comedy. Dr. Lala, is there anything you can't do? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I deserve all that, but I feel so very lucky for, I don't know, the life that I've been given, the family that I'm a part of, and for what I'm able to do for a living. Today in particular, I feel lucky to be on this most coveted Cardio Nerd series amongst all of you. I just really want to congratulate you 
all and this entire enterprise on shaking things up and doing things differently and recognizing that we all receive information in different ways. So I'm really honored to be here and, and I thank you for having me. We're just so lucky to have you. And thank you so much for the kind words. Dr. Lala, before we even get to what a shock call is, we wanted to get back to the basics. So how do you define carnogenic shock? Such a good question, Mark. It's always so good to go back to the basics. I had the good fortune of training under Judy Hockman at NYU, whose career in clinical trials really took off with the shock trial that was published now in 1999 that evaluated emergency revascularization therapy for MIs that were complicated by shock. I bring this up here because it forms an explanation for why we consider cardiogenic shock more so in the setting of acute MI and how things have changed. And I'm hoping we'll talk a little bit about that as this episode continues. But that trial really was patients who had ST elevation MIs or a Q-wave infarction or a new left bundle branch block that were complicated by shock due to LV dysfunction. And the shock was confirmed in that clinical trial, both by clinical and by hemodynamic criteria. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what those different criteria are and how they've evolved over time. But I think it's really interesting because now with the advent of percutaneous coronary interventions, heart failure-related cardiogenic shock is more and more prevalent. And this includes non-ischemic ideologies of shock. And so it's really important for us to keep that in mind when we're thinking about shock, cardiogenic shock, obviously, what the parameters are that define it and what the substrate is to begin with. When we talk about what the definition of shock is, at least in the clinical trial there, a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 millimeters of mercury for at least 30 minutes, or the need for supportive measures to maintain a systolic blood pressure of over 90, and end-organ hypoperfusion. So how is this defined? And this has been carried over over the years. That is defined by cool extremities, or a urine output of less than 30 milliliters per hour and a heart rate of over 60 beats per minute. Those are sort of the clinical criteria. The, there are also hemodynamic criteria that have evolved over time, but at least originated in that trial with a cardiac index of no more than 2.2 liters per minute per square meter of body surface area and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of at least 15 millimeters of mercury. So maybe we'll start there because that's how I think of shock being the most well-defined, and this is now over 20 years ago. And then we can talk hopefully later on in the episode as, as to how that definition might have evolved over time. Wow, Dr. Lala, that was great. really enjoyed how you spoke about the history of how we defined cardiac shock and how it came into prominence specifically with the shock trial. So you mentioned already a couple of things like cool extremities and low blood pressures. Obviously, when we think about patients and we are talking to our trainees and teaching, we first think about history and physical exam, often before we'll get lab tests back or before we can get other testing back. So what features of the history and physical exam are you looking for? Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. This is easy. I get to say thanks, Mark, no matter what <laughs> the question is. But this is my favorite part, really, of the assessment. I think with hemodynamics, they're so attractive and we often look to SWAN numbers as opposed to patients to form our diagnoses. There's just so much vital information, as you alluded to, that can be obtained simply by speaking to and examining a patient. When I walk into a room, for example, I take note of the position the patient is in from the get-go. Are they in the chair or are they in the bed? Are they upright? Is the head elevated or are they lying flat? And then I just scan them head to toe while I introduce myself and try to get to know them where they live, who they live with, get them talking, of course, if they're not intubated or in extremis. I look at things like, are they on oxygen? Are the jugular veins elevated? Are they tachypnic? Are they able to get a sentence out? I tend to hold their hands and feel pulses. I get a good sense of where the patient is. Is the pulse thready? Is it strong? Is it bounding? Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it regular? Is there pulses alternans. I think you can get a lot out of that assessment. So that's something that helps me. And then as I, I spoke about earlier, I feel arms and legs. I really believe in the power of touch and making a connection and an assessment. 
And I know that's a little bit tricky in COVID times, but I still stand by that. I think that's critically important. And that's where you get some of that. Are they warm or are they cold? Then I feel the precordium. I feel for a point of maximal impulse. I feel for an LV heave. That's how I start. Is it is the point of maximal impulse displaced? Is it diffuse? Can I feel an RV heave? And then I auscultate. So I listen. Are they tachycardic? Is there a gallop, importantly, which we know is specific to low output states? I listen for murmurs and you auscultate over each of those valves and it can be helpful to sort of guide what might be going on. Is there aortic stenosis? Is this obstructive shock? Is this severe mitral regurgitation in the setting of an acute MI? Or is this functional mitral regurgitation that is worse because the patient is really congested? And then, of course, I auscultate at the apex, the axilla as well to see where whether it's radiating and you get a feel for what's going on in the heart. I then ask the nurse how much urine they've been making on an hourly basis. I'm abbreviating my physical exam, of course, but I don't want to belabor the point. I always feel the liver, see if I can feel the palpable edge. You look for ascites, things like that. But skipping over to my quick assessment of cardiogenic shock, I look then to see how much urine they've made, as I mentioned, on an hourly basis. So one thing I hope to emphasize over the next you know, half an hour or however long you'll tolerate me talking <laughs> is, is looking at trends right? Not looking just at snapshots because that's so critically important. So looking at the trends of urine output over the past several hours. And then of course, blood pressure. I look at pulse pressure. I'm not a huge fan of only being given the map on rounds and our fellows who round with me will tell you that. I think Corrine Hamo was a previous cardio nurse and she just finished rounding with me and knows that as well now. So I look at that pulse pressure as just another marker of cardiac output. All of these things together. Tell me a little bit more about a patient. Hopefully, while I'm engaging with them on some level to get more collateral personal information as to their recent history, who were they before they came into the hospital? Dr. Lalo, that was an amazing overview of the exam. And the thing that most resonated with me was that you said you were making a human connection with the patient while doing a full assessment of the patient's critical condition. One of the things you mentioned was pulses alternans. And that was amongst a whole bunch of pearls that you had given us here. Can you just delve into that a little bit on how pulses alternans informs your evaluation of a patient that's critically ill? I think this stems from when I was a heart failure fellow at the Brigham, we had a patient who came in in shock after transplant due to not having taken her immunosuppression medicines. And these kinds of scenarios, and I'm sure you guys have felt the same way when you're at the bedside, you never forget those experiences. And I remember feeling her pulse and she truly had pulses alternate. So that's when you're palpating the pulse, this is an alternation of one strong and then a weak beat without a change in the cadence or the cycle length. And that that can be a marker of low output as a marker of increased resistance to ejection from the LV. And so I, I always think that's interesting to look for. Of course, this is distinct from what you might feel if a patient was in atrial fibrillation, where you might feel different intensities of the pulse palpation. But this is really, you've got the same beat, like I said, the same cadence, but you're actually experiencing a strong and a weak pulse alternating. Thanks, Dr. Lala, for that assessment and that description of the exam. And as you mentioned, this is the critical aspect of our initial evaluation. The definition of cardiogenic shock that you provided us is quite broad. Systolic blood pressure less than 90, potentially using vasoactives to maintain a systolic blood pressure over nine-year evidence of end-organ hyperperfusion. And the exam will really narrow in what's going on pathophysiologically for the patient. At the same time, we want to make sure that we have the right inputs, the right data to inform our next steps. So what kind of labs and imaging tests are most helpful in evaluating cardiogenic shock for you? Yeah, thanks, Karen. It's so important because I don't mean to say that the physical exam is all you need. Of course, you do need other information. I think in terms of labs, Markers of end organ perfusion, as you mentioned, are very helpful to me. And that also includes uh, a lactate. So looking at the renal function, looking at the liver function as perhaps it could be either hypoperfusion or congestion for that matter. But really recently, the lactate has indeed been shown to have prognostic significance in this setting. Though the tricky thing is that we've yet to really establish what the optimal thresholds are in this setting. But for me, again, the trends are most 
important. I really try never to look at one number in isolation. Where has the lactate been trending, for example? So if you have an isolated lactate level of six, what an hour ago? Was it eight? And then it's different from whether it was two an hour ago. Similarly, with the creatinine and the liver function tests, and of course, other things like white count, hemoglobin, all these things come into play that you need to look at in an integrated way. I think that's the critically important part of cardiogenic shock assessment is integration of information rather than hanging on one piece of data at a time. And then, of course, imaging chest X-ray in terms of pulmonary effusions or infiltrates, edema, heart size, an echocardiogram if available for you in that acute setting. You know, you're not looking to do a completely elaborate echocardiographic test, but really, what is the assessment of left and right morphology and function? Is there an intracardiac thrombus? Are there regurgitant or stenotic valvular lesions? Is there an outflow tract obstruction that's maybe dynamic? And then there's a lot of interest in getting surrogates for estimates of filling pressures. And it might just be my naivete or ignorance, but I'm not particularly convinced of that method for now. But I always have hope. I'm always humbled every single day. So that's just my particular approach here is that I don't look at estimates of filling pressures by echocardiogram. But really important on the echo is what does the RV look like? Is there significant RV dysfunction? Because we all know, you all know this, that RV dysfunction is really a marker of illness severity. And we know that it also contributes to poor or worse clinical outcomes. It can limit total cardiac output. It also can promote systemic venous congestion and, of course, end organ function as well as it pertains to the kidney and the liver. So I think that's really important. And it also plays into if that patient's going to escalate and or deteriorate rather further and then potentially need short-term or durable mechanical circulatory support, that RV assessment is going to be really critical. And then, of course, there's the PA catheter and hemodynamic assessment and monitoring, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Lala. That was incredibly comprehensive. We're all just going gaga over your emphasis on the RV. So, Dr. Lala, I also love how you emphasize looking at trends and not just relying on snapshots in time, which is actually something that applies to all of cardiology, whether we're tracking somebody in the hours of a hospitalization to decades of their lives that they go over and they go through different phases of their cardiac care. So I definitely think that this is something that may dovetail with what you tell us next. But a common issue that we run across is a missed diagnosis of cardiogenic shock in patients with either undifferentiated shock or non-overt signs of shock or maybe early cardiogenic shock. And we learned with Dr. Mark Drasner in episode 142, a little plug there, that if they're cold, they're cold. And if they're warm, they still might actually be cold and still hypoperfused. This can be seen in acute decompensated heart failure patients in which their poor perfusion status is not noted or an undifferentiated shock patient where the cardiac etiology is not quickly identified. Dr. Lala, what tips and tricks do you have for us to not miss this important diagnosis? Because early cardiogenic shock is not something any cardio nerd wants to miss. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Gosh, it's so funny how so much of your style stems from your personal experiences at the bedside. When you ask a question like that, I think about what I teach fellows and what I remind myself on of when I round is I think cardiogenic shock is particularly scary in younger people because they are so good at masking things. They have so much reserve. Oftentimes, maybe they don't if they're if they've got a history of heart failure, but they, they may just not look as sick as they are. This woman actually that I was alluding to in the beginning who came in uh, acute rejection, cardiogenic shock after transplant. She was a young woman and her exam was actually very subtle. She had a normal blood pressure, quote unquote, by conventional means because her systolic blood pressure was in the 120s, but her diastolic pressure was up in the hundreds. And so that's just one thing that you want to keep note of is what is that pulse pressure? Don't look at just maps because it becomes easy to be fooled by that. So I think that's helpful. I think oftentimes, like you said, a patient may not necessarily be cool to touch. There could be two processes going on. I guess before I answer even that question, we're so indebted to Dr. Drasner and 
his mentor and my mentor, Dr. Lynn Stevenson, for helping us to profile these patients, right, based on congestion and perfusion. And actually, Dr. Hockman, to your point, would also always remind us of the inflammatory cascade that's encountered in all kinds of shock, which can lead to basically cytokine-mediated systemic vasodilation. And this, in fact, actually, if you would recall, I'm sure you guys were exposed to this as well. It was something that we encountered not infrequently in cases of cardiogenic shock amidst the COVID pandemic, wherein patients could be underperfused but warm on exam by virtue of widespread systemic inflammation. So I think this scenario points out, again, the importance of integration of information. And forgive me if I'm like a broken record, but not taking any one data point in isolation, no matter what it is, whether it's cold extremities or an elevated lactate or a low mixed venous on the PA catheter, which so often is just considered the gold standard. Every piece of information has to be integrated into one clinical picture. And so this goes back to the aspects of the physical exam that we spoke about. What is end organ function looking like, not just by lab markers, but by actual urine output? What is their mental status? Do they seem like they're a little bit more lethargic? Can you get an idea of what their baseline is? And then, of course, we already talked a little bit about the echo and the imaging findings, etc. But I think if you have a high index of suspicion, it won't mislead you, if that makes sense. And I think not being quick to make an assessment is also important. Taking your time, putting pieces together, and then making an assessment. And you may be wrong. Gosh, I've been wrong a lot. But we get better with time. We start to recognize patterns and then it comes quicker to us. It comes more easily. So I don't know if there's any one piece of information that I could say, hey, this is someone who has mixed shock or this has someone who has early shock or undifferentiated shock. But rather, I would just make that that point again of, of integrating all these pieces of data. I hope that makes sense. No, I think that totally does. Taking a lot of these pieces back, integrating in the way that I'm thinking about the patient that we presented at the very beginning of this episode. So we have a 63-year-old man with severe multivessel CAD, recent cabbage, so recent low, so basically ischemic cardiomyopathy, presenting with signs and symptoms of significant congestion. And now I'm thinking about it along the lines of all the signs and symptoms of acute decompensated heart failure that you mentioned. And I think something that I also try to do in my practice is to kind of think of the hemodynamic profile on the two axes as famously defined by Dr. Lynn Stevenson, as you mentioned, with the two axes being like volume status and perfusion status. For volume status, I think our patient is clearly wet. Now, what's our perfusion status, right? Warm or cold. And I think in this particular case, he has evidence of poor end organ perfusion with cool extremities, that narrow pulse pressure that we mentioned, elevated lactate and acute kidney injury. I think putting it all together, it's all concerning for that low flow state. Love that explanation, Mark. So our patient is likely in the cold and wet profile. And if I was taking this call, I would certainly be concerned that the patient is in cardiogenic shock. Next, let's consider the severity. In 2019, the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography Interventions, aka SKY, released a consensus statement on the classification of cardiogenic shock. This is the latest classification following UNOS and Intermax. Dr. Lala, how do you classify cardiogenic shock when evaluating a patient? Would you briefly describe the different classifications and give us your approach to using this to actually move the patient's care forward? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. I think these tools provide a framework in our brain, right? Cardiogenic shock is such an acute adrenaline-filled circumstance for us as clinicians. And so it's important when we have these classifications and these schemes and these definitions for us to keep our thoughts somewhat organized amidst the chaos that's happening when you have a really sick patient in front of you. So I do think that these classification schemes are really helpful. There are many of them, as you already alluded to. So when you're thinking about acute MI shock, that's different from heart failure cardiogenic shock, which is what it sounds like this patient has. So maybe he has a history of coronary disease, a recent cabbage, a low ejection fraction, a backdrop of an ischemic cardiomyopathy, as you mentioned, who is now low output and progressing into cardiogenic shock. And so they're a little different, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think AHAACC kind of defines this by stage C slash D heart failure, right? And then our NYHA class will say, okay, this is a 3B to an ambulatory 
class four patient to an advanced class four patient. And then there are the Intermax profiles that are trying to capture those more advanced near heart association class patients. And those go from one to seven. And I'm sure you guys have covered these. So forgive me if I'm belaboring the point, but Intermax one profile is developed with the intent of understanding who would benefit from mechanical circulatory support, right? So one is the crash and burn right there in front of you. They need MCS. You're petrified. You're calling your attendings, et cetera. Two are those patients. Again, this is coined by Dr. Stevenson and others. Two are those folks who are sliding fast, right? They're on two inotropes and they're still not perfusing. Their creatinine still getting worse. They still have low-level lactates, et cetera. Three are those patients who are now stabilized, but they're on inotropes. Intermax profile four are those patients who have symptoms at rest, so I think of them as they're like ambulatory NYHA class four patients. And those lines are not by any means really set in stone. They're more in the sand, if you will. But then there's Intermax profile five that is exertion intolerant, or sometimes we'll call it the walking wounded. Intermax six and seven are the less sick. You think of them as you're like NYHA class 3B folks. So like exertion limited is six and really advanced class three patients are seven. So we typically think of one, two, and three as being a little bit clearer because they are requiring vasoactive substances or mechanical circulatory support for stabilization. Whereas four almost sits on its own for me. And then you've got five, six, and seven, which are like the less sick. In terms of the sky shock stages, I think it's really nice because they proposed a five-stage classification system specifically targeted at the classification of cardiogenic shock. And so we've talked a little bit about all these other classification schemes, but this one is really for cardiogenic shock. And so E is like those patients who are an extremis. And I think of them as overlapping with Intermax Profile 1. There's a really nice state-of-the-art article in a journal of cardiac failure, senior authored by Naveen Kapoor and also first authored by a number of wonderful junior folks and fellows like yourself that shows a really nice overlap of all of these classes classification schemes. So coming back to the sky shock stages, you've got E, which is extremis, which I think of this overlapping with Intermax Profile 1. And then you've got D, which is deteriorating. So to me, that's like very much like the Intermax Profile 2. So like they're deteriorating, they're sliding fast despite support with vasoactive substances. Stage C is classic cardiogenic shock. That to me is like in between Intermax Profile 2 and 3, if you will. And then interestingly, stage B is like the beginning of cardiogenic shock, which I think you guys really nicely tried to touch on in the previous question. And that can be a little bit tricky. And then moving back even further, A is are those patients who are at risk for cardiogenic shock. And so I think it's nice when we think about these things in a more systematic fashion. And you can see how there's so much overlap between these different classification schemes. For me, it, it helps me think about which therapies I'm going to grab for or think about next. Who do I need to engage with next? Is it a CT surgeon? Is it one of my interventional colleagues, et cetera? Dr. Lila, you really brought those classifications to light. Sounds like all of these classifications have their value, but the SKY criteria is perfect for organizing our cardiogenic shock emissions. Just to quickly backtrack though, you had alluded at the start of the episode to a recent article in the Journal of Cardiac Failure, a state-of-the-art review addressing heart failure-related cardiogenic shock in comparison to acute myocardial infarction-related cardiogenic shock. How do you incorporate these etiologic classifications into your evaluation, and how do they add to the illness severity classifications we just discussed? Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. I'm biased. Obviously, you know I love this journal, and I love this issue, and and this state-of-the-art article in particular, because importantly, it highlights the difference between acute MI shock and worsening heart failure cardiogenic shock, as we've already talked about. The clinical trajectory of acute MI shock is different from heart failure shock. Acute MI shock is characterized by an abrupt presentation, right? You have this abrupt event that leads to cardiogenic shock in otherwise previously potentially stable and maybe ambulatory patients. Whereas patients with chronic heart failure may have multiple decompensations that can then slowly progress to a pre-cardiogenic shock state or a frank overt cardiogenic shock state where you need to do something promptly in order to get them back to an ambulatory state. You know, when you think of acute MI cardiogenic shock, you think, okay, I need to get this patient back to native heart sort of recovery. Whereas in heart failure cardiogenic shock, you may be thinking, okay, is this patient now 
a candidate for advanced therapies? Am I thinking about an, a left ventricular assist device? Or am I going to think about for the patients with a history of heart failure, particularly with reduced ejection fraction, am I moving to heart transplantation? Is this patient a, a candidate for heart transplantation? So I think that's the key distinction for me that's brought out in the state of the art paper that I hope people will take away from it. It's almost, for me, it's also challenging with the sky classification, thinking about stage A, who is at risk for cardiogenic shock, right? And it's someone who is really fits into that acute MI category, right? Where they don't have symptoms maybe going in, but because they've had an acute, particularly anterior MI, they're at risk for cardiogenic shock. And then for those patients with chronic heart failure symptoms, you know, severe cardiomyopathies, those patients are also at risk for cardiogenic shock. One thing I'd love to share with you guys that anyone who's rounded with me at Sinai will tell you is I always like to ask myself the question, given the scenario you guys described in this patient, someone with multiple comorbid conditions and ischemic cardiomyopathy who's coming in with a worsening heart failure episode, just at the outset, before you tell me that he's not responding to diuretics and it seems like he's cool, the question I ask myself is, would I be surprised if this patient developed cardiogenic shock tonight? And if the answer is no, that I need to think of what my backup plan is. What am I thinking about this patient? So he's 63. Is he a transplant candidate? How bad is that CKD? Is he going to be able to get just a heart alone? Is this patient an LVAD candidate? Would that be in line with what this patient would want? And obviously you can't do this for every patient all the time, but you could start thinking that way. I think if we get into the habit as clinicians of, would I be surprised if something terrible happened to this patient tonight? I think it just increases your level of alertness. It makes you make sure that you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's. So that's a question I love to ask myself that I hope others will find helpful too, because it it just allows for a sense of preparedness. Thanks, Dr. Lala. Unfortunately, this patient that was initially described by the ELC was having limited urine output. And really, the initial attempts at intravenous diuretics didn't work. And as we learned in episodes 153 and 154 on diuresis, so please listen to these episodes. They're featuring Drs. Nick Smith, Anjali Wagli, Nisha Galotra, Matthew Sparks, Michael Falker and Kelly Arps. It was really well done. And what they went through there was there were multiple reasons why patients may not respond to IV diuretics, including renal venous congestion or renal hyperperfusion. And so, Dr. Lala, I think the team was asking themselves that question that you just mentioned. Would I be surprised if this patient went into cardiogenic shock? And they were not. But that next question about what to do next, I think the team needed some help with. And so what they did is they reached out to the shock team. Now, there is a ton of buzz about shock teams. Can you explain to all our listeners, all the cardio nerds out there, what they are, why we use them? And if right now is the appropriate time for the team to be calling the institution's shock team? Yeah, Dan, that's such a good question. Thanks for asking, because you're getting at the now what, you know, which is what we all want to know. I think cardiogenic shock is truly a clinical scenario that really requires multidisciplinary input. And that's between heart failure, it's between interventional cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, electrophysiology, honestly, sometimes when indicated, also the cardiac intensivists and or even cardiac anesthesia, depending on the clinical scenario. But once activated, and each institution has their own take on this, a nice thought-provoking paper that's in circulation, I think in 2019, senior authored by Stavros Drakos, who's just another wonderful guy that you guys should definitely talk to on Cardio Nerds if you haven't already. He just shared the experience at Utah where there was an advanced heart failure doc, an interventionalist, and a CT surgeon who all came together for any decision around patient management in anyone there was a suspicion for or cardiogenic shock. And so essentially there is an activation and that can happen by any kind of centralized process. At Sinai, we have an administrative support call center whereby any cardiogenic shock patient, even at referring hospitals, calls the call center, then activates the shock team. And that involves getting one of us on the heart failure team, one of the CT surgeons and one of the interventionalists all on the call at the same time with the referring physician to talk about the clinical scenario. And so it affords a measured discussion, right? And everyone has their own vantage points. So when you have different people providing their own expert opinion and input, then I think you're able to come away from the scenario with at least an initial plan that is an integrated plan. Many people have proposed that the heart failure cardiologist is like the initial screen, but I think it could be either one of those people, quite frankly. The important thing is that we've got experts from different fields within cardiology and CT surgery coming together for the purposes of 
A, confirming, is this cardiogenic shock? What's the backdrop? And then what's our plan moving forward? And that could be a discussion of survival benefit. Is there benefit to doing short-term durable mechanical circulatory support? Is this patient a transplant candidate as we talked about? And I think it addresses the concern of delaying care. I think oftentimes the concern with having a multidisciplinary approach and a shock team, if I wait to coordinate the care amongst cardiology and CT surgery and heart failure, I'm going to lose time and time is myocardium and end organ perfusion. But I think multiple studies and multiple institutions' experiences have shown us that multidisciplinary approach, in fact, doesn't delay implementation of critical decisions. It actually ensures an appropriate level of support and importantly, it allows for a planning of care escalation. A number of centers have shown actually the improved outcomes associated with shock teams at respective institutions, and Sinai is one of them. And I'm sure you guys have shock teams at each one of your institutions as well. But I'm a huge proponent of this effort to get people of different expert opinions together at the same time. And it also allows us to keep in mind what tools are in our armamentarium. So that's the essence of the shock team. I think it's just so great. I think about the shock team that it's so great to see that communication really does improve outcomes. And that in this particular case, we finally have another out intervention that does decrease mortality and cardiogenic shock. Of course, multidisciplinary teams like this work best when they're used properly. So as an expert frequently on the line for these calls, Dr. Lala, what are the pertinent details that you'd recommend we make sure we include if we're in the preparing end of the call or listen for on the receiving end? Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. We've covered a lot of it from the biologic perspective, but what we haven't really covered is getting to know the patient to whatever extent possible prior to their presentation, prior to that cardiogenic shock phone call. Who are they outside of the hospital? Who do they live with? What do they do for a living? Do they see doctors? Are they on medicines regularly? What is their support system? Do we know anything about their wishes in terms of goals of care, etc.? And I think in addition to all of the key points that we've already talked about, I think this is a really crucial piece of information to get. Because we can ultimately reach out for whatever device it might be, whether it's an impella or a balloon pump or Centrimax or a total artificial heart, even at one extreme. But we're not going to be serving the patient if we don't recognize who they are as much as we possibly can. Recognizing, obviously, that some of these patients are in extremis and we don't have the time to obtain that information. But to whatever extent that we can, I would just want to remind our listeners and myself, we can all use this reminder is recognizing that these patients are people prior to coming in with shock. And so integrating our approach with who they are as individuals, I think, is really key. Thank you so much for that. I think that's just so beautifully stated. I think in the throes of these stressful situations, particularly as either trainees or young physicians making and preparing these calls, calling a huge group of individuals and other providers, it's so easy to get so caught up in the minutia of these fine details and forgetting who the patient is. And at the end of the day, we're here to serve people and make people feel better so they can get home to their families and live healthy, productive lives. And so I think bringing that back to who the person is, I think is such a beautiful sentiment. And I think, yeah, we should be saying it more of these shock calls. Yeah. What are we seeking to allow for? Of course, improved survival, but also a return to independence and a, a return to hopefully restored or even improved quality of life. Wow. Yes, totally agree. That was beautiful. Bring it back to our case. What would you say to the caller on the other end of the shock team line? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Sounds like you guys have really nicely described that this patient is indeed underperfused on the backdrop of having a pre-existing cardiomyopathy attributed to ischemic causes. Without going into too much nitty-gritty, you know, the recent cabbage, did one of the vein grafts go down? Is this something that we should potentially see as what tipped him over in this scenario? So is there like an acute on chronic sort of ischemic event that, that tipped him over. But in addition to that, I still want to think about the short term and then the kind of 
mid to longer term. And this is all within the context of the hospitalization, right? So in the short term, how can we best support this patient? I think it, again, depends on trying to better understand what's going on. The troponins were flat, so it's unlikely to have been an acute ischemic event with maybe like the lima going down or something like that. It sounds at least like this is more of chronic myocardial injury attributed to chronic heart failure. Initial stabilization, whether that is inotropic support or based on then taking a little bit further, what we think the end game is for this patient. So this is a patient with however many years longstanding or maybe not so longstanding ischemic cardiomyopathy. It would make me wonder as to whether we should be thinking about advanced therapies in someone like this. Because Importantly, and this is another thing I always talk about on rounds, is when you're starting inotropes on a patient, we know inotropes are associated with worse mortality, worse outcomes. We have trials of chronic heart failure patients being tried on inotropic therapy to actually improve outcomes, and it showed indeed the opposite. So whenever I start an inotrope on a patient, I think about what my endgame is. Am I doing this for palliation? Am I doing this because they're truly diuretic resistant, and that's sort of a data-free zone, which I'm sure you guys have already covered? Or am I doing this now because I'm considering advanced therapies? So I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Really, what's this trajectory is what I'd love to know about this patient. But it sounds like it may be reasonable because this patient is not responding to diuretic therapy, although I could argue, depending on their home dose, you you might be able to escalate it even further. It would be reasonable to get more information, whether that's through a hemodynamic evaluation, a class 2A, to get a right heart cath in this scenario. And I also think that right heart caths or PA catheterizations are underutilized in this scenario. So this is a patient who you could say is going into shock, if you will, maybe like a Sky B or or even an Intermax 4. And so I think a PA catheter with an assessment of hemodynamics would be helpful. Going back to how we started out, the shock trial, again, albeit in the acute MI setting, so a different scenario, everybody had hemodynamic monitoring, right? So I think it's really important. And there's some recent data also to alluding to the fact that those patients who are managed with PA catheters in this scenario, in the shock scenario, may have better outcomes. Thanks, Dr. Lala. And that leads me into my next question, which is we've basically taken this entire call so far without any invasive hemodynamics. So this patient is headed up to the CCU, aka the Shulman unit, and the general fellow is already setting up the Swangans catheter. And she's going to ask us what information we'd like. So Dr. Lal, I have two kind of broad questions for you. A lot of shock team algorithms require invasive hemodynamics when making the call. Do you believe it's necessary to have those invasive hemodynamics before making the shock call? And broadly, because we'll be covering this in a future episode, how is that invasive hemodynamic information going to guide your next steps? Yeah, thanks. And I think that's actually a really important question is, do I think that you need the hemodynamic assessment prior to the shock call? In broad strokes, I would say no, because I think oftentimes you're getting referrals or calls from people who may not have access to doing a PA catheter or experience doing it. So I would say if there's a clinical suspicion for shock that clinicians in general should feel like they have access to an expert team to help them in the evaluation of that diagnosis. So I guess that's the first part of your question. The second part of the question, which I alluded to in the answer to the last question is, yes, I I want that hemodynamic assessment. If I'm thinking shock, I would like a PA catheter in place, which you've already hopefully done in this cardio nerds CCU. And how does that information guide next steps? I think when I think about what is it that I'm gaining from that PA catheter assessment? Well, I'm already, I have an assessment of their arterial pressure, so I have that. But now what I'm looking for is filling pressures and then perfusion by way of either thermodilution, perfusion meaning our our cardiac output. And I focus on cardiac index because I like it to be relative to the body surface area. An output of five in an 80 pound, four foot female compared to an output of five in a six foot, 200 pound man is obviously completely different. So I would say first focus on that cardiac index. And then in terms of filling pressures, so you want your CVP, you want your wedge pressure because you importantly want to think about them in relationship to each other. And I'll come back to that. You want your PA pressures and again, your systolic and your diastolic pressure, just the way I was sharing with you that the systolic and the diastolic systemic pressures are important to me as a marker of perfusion. 
or cardiac index. Similarly, having that PA systolic and that PA diastolic pressure is important for me to understand how the RV is doing. What's the RV able to handle? And we all are familiar with Naveen Kapoor's coined term, the poppy or the PA pulsatility index, which is the PA systolic minus the PA diastolic pressure over the RA pressure or the CVP as another marker of RV function, which I'll get to. And then, of course, the cardiac index, whether that's assessed by thermodilution or by FIC. And I'm sure you guys are going to have more information coming on this soon, so I don't want to steal anyone's thunder. But broadly speaking, what do I get from this information? I get, are they congested? Do they need diuresis? And I get, are they underperfused? And it's a confirmation of the integration of all the different things that we've already talked about, the physical exam, the lab, the imaging, et cetera. But importantly, as we already talked about, don't forget that RV, I am able to categorize it as is this LV dominant shock? Is this RV dominant shock? Or a lot of times what we see in our chronic heart failure patients is this biventricular shock. And this is really important because it informs what therapies are at our disposal next that will actually serve our patient. And then just really quick, coming back to that CVP to wedge ratio, the typical relationship is, is like a CVP of five to a wedge of 10. You know, I like using nickels and dimes. So you've got an intact relationship when you've got 0.5 and then we see that there's RV dysfunction when you see that ratio going towards 0.6 and then overt RV failure even at ratios that have been established at 0.86 or higher. So for me to come back, long-winded answer, unfortunately, to your question, but I am looking at your filling pressures, your CVP and wedge ratio, your PA pulsatility index, or and that's an integration, of course, of the PA systolic and diastolic difference, and then your cardiac index. And then uh, lastly, I'll just mention that, of course, you want a formal assessment of your systemic vascular resistance as well, which can be mixed depending on the clinical scenario. But normal systemic vascular resistance, as we know, is 800 to 1200 dynes. And if we see that it's elevated, particularly above 1600, it can be someone who's really clamped down and, and may go along with that person who's also cold. Thanks, Dr. Lala. That was a perfect prelude into our deep dive of invasive hemodynamics. Coming up soon on an episode with Dr. Nusheen Reza and Brian McCauley of the University of Pennsylvania. So cardio nerds, make sure you please listen to that episode. Great. And also now that we can relax after that shop team call. Dr. Lala, one last question from an even bigger fangirl now that we've spoken. Um, and of course, a CardioNerd's favorite. What makes your heart flutter about cardiac critical care? Uh -huh. I think this is the one clinical scenario that serves as a true test of your nerves and your ability to integrate the knowledge that you've acquired with a really careful bedside assessment. I love that all coming together at one point. I love coming together across disciplines at the bedside in an effort to make the best possible decisions for our patients. And this is a little bit maybe off what we're hoping to cover, but from a spiritual sense, I think when you're seeing patients at this kind of brink of really life and death, when we think about cardiogenic shock, the grim reality is that the mortality has not changed that much. It stays at a, a staggering 40 to 50%. And, and we're, of course, trying our best to do more and think about it differently and recognize how cardiogenic shock has evolved over time. But from a spiritual standpoint, you're really, you're faced with a family and a patient at that brink of life and death. And I think if we can all remind ourselves of the fact that we are human and we are treating other humans in this incredibly vulnerable, adrenaline-driven state, both for the patient and by virtue of what we have to do for the clinicians, I think it brings about a lot of humility and respect for what we are able to do. And so I think for all of those reasons, this is a, a clinical scenario that I deeply enjoy, but also respect and am humbled by. Wow, what a beautiful sentiment and what a perfect way to end this conversation. Dr. Lala, thank you for taking the time to discuss the initial management of cardiogenic shock with us. We hope this helps our listeners with identification and early management of cardiogenic shock and helps optimize those shock team calls. It is so important that we first laid this foundation with you on appropriate and rapid identification of cardiogenic shock. Thank you so much, Dr. Lala, for the fantastic teaching. I know the DLC and I cannot wait to incorporate these pearls tomorrow on rounds. I'm really so grateful to all of you. I hope I didn't talk too much. And I'm, I'm grateful to our listeners as well who are committed to this lifelong pursuit of knowledge. So really an honor to be with you all. 
Dan, that's your cue. Dan? Muted. Sorry about that. I was muted. <laughs> you were getting nerdy by yourself? Ugh, <laughs> uh, yes. Hold on. Oh, my God. Give me one second. <laughs> okay. Oh, and now let's get nerdy. Sorry, I'm in my mind. I was like, oh, we could just use that from another episode. But let me just go and say it. And now, time to get nerdy. <laughs> it's great. <laughs>